The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and turn back to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 3. We're finding each week as we study through the book of Romans, the simplicity and the complexity of the gospel. As you see that graphic up, we've been talking about this all along, that Romans is like an automatic watch. It has so many moving parts and so many gears and so many intricacies that you can look at and appreciate. And yet at the end of the day, it just tells time. Romans is deep and Romans is wonderfully, at the same time, simple. And today we come to look at the totality of depravity. Most of us know what we're talking about when we say the total depravity of man, but this text before us goes beyond the total depravity of man and talks about the totality of man's depravity. Follow along as I read verses 9 through 18. Paul says, What then are we, the Jews, better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. We've said all along, if you read the book of Romans and you don't like being called names, you're in trouble. If you read the book of Romans and you don't like your self-esteem challenged, you're in trouble. Nowhere does that come into fuller focus than today. Nothing has greater bearing, nothing has more determining uh, power in your religious views, in your political views, in your family values, in your social norms, or even in your view of yourself than whether or not you view human nature as basically good or entirely evil. Ask any person on the street, is man good or bad? They'll probably say something like, well, there's a little good in everybody. They'll say something like, well, there are good people and there are bad people. The assumption and presupposition is that some people possess a seed of goodness in their heart. If your view of human nature is that we're all basically good, then you'll conclude that evil forces come from outside an individual. Poverty, the environment, opportunity, genetics, upbringing, these become the blame residuals for the scapegoats of our badness. Further, if you believe that human nature is basically good, then your plan for the development of children will be, will be to protect their moral innocence, isolate them from evil influences, and fight evil that's out there in the world because it certainly is not in there in their hearts. Worst of all, if sin is not the problem, then the gospel will never be the solution. 
The book of Romans is the most theologically dense book in the New Testament, actually in the whole Bible. Its message is simple, but the implications and the inner working of its message have endless wonders to explore. Romans explains, as verse 1 tells us, the gospel of God, the good news of God. Verse 3 says the good news of God concerns his son, Jesus Christ. That's the way the, 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 the whole book begins, and the rest of its 16 chapters explain what that means and why it's so important. God gave good news, and the good news was his son came. Why is that good news? It's easy for us to talk about the good news, easy for us to say the gospel, but do we understand why that news is so precious, why that news is so good? Do we understand, as my four-year-old son said to me one time, why we're such in trouble with God? The foundations of the assertion that human nature is fundamentally bad and needs to be saved from self from Satan, and especially from God and his wrath, are the hallmark of this chapter in Romans 3. Actually, this portion of Scripture functions as a hinge in the book. For two and a half chapters, we've been hearing that the Gentiles are wicked, the Gentiles are evil, they have it in their heart only to do bad. Then Paul, in a strange turn in chapter 2, says... The Jews don't have it any better. They have evil residing in their own hearts. They they neglected the oracles of God. They looked away from what God had given them. They rejected their Messiah. They too are evil and wicked. In chapter 3, verses 9 to 18, sums it up for everybody. The assessment of God, of the, the nature of man, human nature, is not a pleasant one. Genesis 6, 5, then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every, listen to the piling up of these adjectives, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else, desperately sick. Isaiah 1, verse 4, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They've despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from Him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick. The whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, Welts and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged nor softened with oil. In the New Testament, Ephesians 3, and you, before you were saved by God's grace, you were dead in your transgressions, trespasses, and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, according to the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. We were by nature children of wrath, Paul says. Children of wrath. Born from and to God's anger. Theologians call this the doctrine of depravity, but that's not strong enough. They call it the doctrine of total depravity. And that nomenclature, that way of assessing man's depravity, came as a response to a theologian, a Catholic theologian, called Thomas Aquinas, named Thomas Aquinas, who who developed what was called a Thomistic view of depravity. I don't know why they named it after his first name, but it's still Thomistic. The reason is that he said man is basically neutral. 
And in his neutrality, he can choose God or Satan. He can choose good or evil. He can choose right or wrong. He was neutral until the forces outside of him begin to, to wear on his heart to make him sinful. Well, this passage says just the opposite. The doctrine of total depravity is that we are sinful totally. Total depravity, though, does not mean that everyone is as bad as they could be. We understand that. It does not mean that there are not people who express their depravity in a more destructive and horrific way than others. It means that every man is utterly incapable of generating righteousness on his own. It's not just the presence of sin, as we'll see in the next two chapters. It's the absence of righteousness that's the problem. Unable to generate righteousness on our own. What do you believe about the nature of man? As we said, for two and a half chapters, Paul's been unpacking the simple concept that there's, there's no escape for anyone from God and his judgment, and there's no excuse to be made about anyone's personal sinfulness. And after two and a half chapters of really just tying a noose in his argument about the sinfulness of man, in the verses before us, Romans 3, 9 through 18, the knot has slipped around all of our necks, And the hatch drops beneath our feet, and we see that we are entirely bound and incapable of dealing with this burden of sin that God has assessed. I asked Kim to read this passage. Just read it. It took her 28 seconds. It's not a long passage. Very short, staccato phrases. But I want to break some extreme homiletical preaching rules today, if I can. There are, and there will be, 12 points in this sermon. And the reason there are 12 points in the sermon is there's 12 points in the text. I can't improve on God. There are 12 bullet points, 12 driving points that are made about our depravity. When we lived in Los Angeles, um, I, at one point, was taken out by some friends to go surfing. Let me just say, I am not a surfer. Just, when, just because you've been surfing does not make you a surfer. Trust me. We went out to Zuma Beach. We were out and enjoying some waves, or at least I was getting wet. At one point, I got up on a wave, and it was glorious. For, I don't know, 10, 15 seconds, I was hearing Beach Boys in my head. I was absolutely on top of the world. And then I, I crashed probably 50 yards from the shore. It was about waist-deep water, and the, the wave came over me, and I was pretty happy, but I was pretty gassed and out of breath. And I jumped up, and I was trying to catch a breath, and immediately another wave pounded me. And I rolled on the, on, on the sand, and I, I was really gasping for for air. I came up another, and another one hit me. Three times that happened. I literally really thought I was going to die. All the while, my friend was laughing hysterically. (laughs) And I remember his first comment, and you'll have to know him, began with with the word dude, as most surfing language does. Dude, you've got to know that waves come in sets. What does that mean? He said they can usually come in sevens, but they're going to come one after the other. When you come up, you've got to be ready for a wave to hit you immediately. I said, that's good to know now. I appreciate that. That's what this passage does. 
It's a set of assertions about our depravity. And it pounds and pounds and pounds, and you cannot get your breath. We're going to take it quickly. We could spend the next six months on this passage, but I think that would really diminish the power and impact of it. It's supposed to be quick staccato punches to show how bad we really are. If you came here today for an uplifting self-esteem sermon, I would excuse you to go to the, to the picnic a little early. But I can tell you this, unless you get this, the gospel will not, can I say this, feel as precious as it is. So you might want to take a deep breath and embrace yourself. Here they come. Twelve descriptions of man's total depravity. Twelve descriptions of man's total depravity. We find the first in verse 9. Man is collectively depraved. Man is collectively depraved. The word depraved means sinful, wicked. Verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Paul has been talking about the Jews in the third person in the second chapter and up through the third chapter, verse 8. Now he shifts to first person. It's not them, it's we, it's us, it's me. He's taking this personally. Why? Yes, the Jews were culpable of sin with the Gentiles. He made that point in chapter 2 and in the first eight verses of chapter 3. But yes, there is still an advantage to being a Jew. You're given the, the word of God, the oracles of God. You have a tremendous advantage as a Jew with the authority of scriptures in front of you to see as it is written with the authority of God making a foundation for theology and for thinking. Still, though, he says... We're all under sin. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Uh, uh, he basically says, what advantage is the Jew? There's some advantage, not all advantage. But ultimately, everything is level at the foot of the cross. Look at that last phrase in verse 9. All are, say it with me, under sin. If you underline things in your Bible, that is an underlinable statement. If you don't get the end of this verse right, the rest of Romans will be lost to your understanding, and worse, the gospel will be beyond your reach and grasp. That's quite a statement. If you don't understand that last phrase of verse 9, you might as well check out for the rest of Romans. The reality of sin must be personal, as it was with Paul, with all of us. He's already charged in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that Jews and Greeks, Jews and Gentiles are all sinful, wicked, under sin, can do, under sin, can do nothing but evil from their birth. Everyone born with a stiff arm in God's face. And he says, it's not, it's not about the Gentiles and their need for the gospel alone. It's, it's not just about the Jews and their need for the gospel alone. This is collective. Now he gets his arms around both groups and uses terms like all and none collectively. Man is collectively depraved. Both those who have inherited the blessing of God, the Jews in this context, even those who are raised in the church and those who know nothing about God, all are under sin. I'll become more clear in a moment. Secondly, another wave that crashes on us, man is ontologically depraved. Big philosophical word that just means the nature of your being, who we are and really are. 
Now look at verse 10. I love the first phrase, as it is written. That's Paul saying, I'm about to do some exposition, exposition on some psalms. I'm expositing what God has already said, as it is written. That is a, such an important phrase that tells us so much about his affection for God and his authority, his commitment to God's word. His theological assertions are built on God's written word, not his own thinking. As it is written, here it comes, the alls and the nuns. There is none righteous. If that's not enough, he puts an exclamation point and says, not even one. Ontology has to do with your essence, your being, who you are inside intrinsically. First, he says, because of what is written, I can say that there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Now, footnote. This term righteousness is found in the context of Paul's describing our sinfulness on purpose. Because beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, and the rest of the book, he's going to talk about the righteousness of God, what it is, and how it's obtained. But before we find what it is and how we can obtain it, he wants to make sure we know we don't have it. What is the righteousness that we need? This is a strange and odd and a challenging thing to consider. But righteousness, you can say the word perfection. You use this in your evangelistic conversations. You have to be righteous to go to heaven, which means you have to be perfect to go to heaven. Who qualifies for that? Paul answers it. There's none righteous. Not even one. Now, there is a footnote in Paul's mind that he's going to begin explaining in the last half of this chapter. Not even one except who? Except Jesus, God's son. But no human. In verses 10 and 12 deal with Two texts from the Psalms. Let me just read these texts because he's going to go back to these in the next two verses in Romans 3. Psalm, one, uh, excuse me, Psalm 14 verse 1 says, The fool has said in his heart, there is what? No God. They are corrupt. They've committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. He just quoted that. No one who does good. The Lord has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men. Look who's seeking. God looking. God seeking. The Lord has looked down from heaven to the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God, and they have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There's no one who does good, not even one. We find a scene in heaven here that Paul's going to describe for us in these next two verses. God is constantly looking around the earth to see the evaluation that his own character makes on the character of man. What's his assessment? There's no one good. And he's looked at everyone and he says, not even one. That means perfect, righteous, holy, without blame. Psalm 53, verses 1 to 3, says basically the same thing. The fool has said in his heart, there's no God. They're corrupt, committed abominable deeds. There's no one who does good. God looks down from the heaven upon the sons of men to see if there's anyone who understands who seeks after God. Everyone, he says, comprehensive. Everyone is turned aside. There's no one who does good. He says, again, not even one. Look at that. No one does good. Righteous, perfect. Not even one person, no exceptions. You say, well, hang on. 
I saw a guy once do something nice for someone, and it sure looked good to me. Romans 14, 23 has something to say about that. Paul will say when we get there, whatever is not of faith is sin. Whatever is not of faith is sin. So it's not just kind acts. Even kind acts are rooted in selfish motivations. It has to be rooted in, grounded in, and for the glory of God through faith. Now, the key word, as I said, that will occur in the next six chapters over and over is the word righteous. Only Jesus qualifies. Only Jesus is the exception here. God will impute. He will transfer perfection. It's unbelievable. Perfection of Jesus to us and take our sin and transfer or impute it to Jesus. That's why he's crucified on the cross, and that's why we get to go to heaven. No one does good. Everyone's wicked. Not even one. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. What about babies? Those little bundles of righteousness, right? Until they turn two. Listen, there's a difference between being righteous and being innocent. Two major theological differences. A child can be sinful, but yet innocent in the expression of his sin, but it's still that little bundle of joy contains all the seeds for unrighteousness. Let's keep going another way. That was perfect. <laughs> Just like we rehearsed it, by the way. Thirdly, man is mentally depraved. Mentally depraved. There is none, verse 11, none who understands. Look at the none, all, none, no one. None who understands. Man's moral reason is broken. His understanding is bent towards selfishness. 1 Corinthians 2.14, a natural man does not accept the things of God, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot understand them. It's impossible for an unsaved mind to understand the real grip of righteousness being transferred to God and received by faith. Isaiah 5.20, woe to those who call evil good, and good they call evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. In other words, mentally, in the understanding of a man's natural assessment, he uses instinct and intuition to create a standard that makes him more acceptable in his own mind than he'll ever be in God's. Men is mentally depraved. Our brains are broken. If you don't believe that, just raise a child. No one, no child just ever said, oh, I long to do everything that's right today. Can you give me extra things to do that, that would please you and, and, and the father this morning? Not natural. Mentally, we are depraved None who understands. You can't get it. And by the way, this will come back in Romans 6 as a slave to righteousness. Our understanding is so broken, you can never talk anyone into the gospel. This is the work of the Spirit of God who, we read it this morning in Matthew, who opens eyes to see, who opens ears to hear. Mentally depraved. Another way that crashes on us. Theologically depraved. Right in the middle of verse 11. There is none who seeks God. 
I want to pause here for a moment. One of the worst theological errors of our generation is what has been called the seeker-sensitive movement. These seven words, there is none who seeks for God. These seven simple words dismantle and indict the seeker-sensitive movement in half a sentence. Can I be as clear as the Bible? There are no seekers. There is none who seeks God. Is that, can you be any more clear than that? No one wakes up this morning and says, I wonder if I'm going to seek God or not today. Hmm, let me have breakfast and decide that. None who seeks for God. That theological truth about seeking is in the Psalms that Paul is quoting. There's some seeking going on, right? But it's God who's doing the seeking, not man who's doing the seeking. There is indeed that seeking from God the seeker with a capital S. He looks down from heaven to see if there's anyone who seeks after him, and his search is in vain. His conclusion is that all have turned aside to assert that there are people who are seeking God and just need to be directed is to fly against the Apostle Paul and King David. Furthermore, by understanding man to be a seeker of God on his own, the doctrine of election and God's sovereignty and salvation are either ignored or completely denied. Yes, people need to be evangelized by the faithful proclamation of the gospel. No understanding of the sovereignty of God and salvation that leads away from evangelism honors Christ, honors his heart, honors the scripture. But the great truth that regeneration is a work of God that opens blind eyes and enlivens dead souls must have an effect on how we think and do ministry. The seeker, mentally, can lean toward an unwarranted concentration on a person we're trying to evangelize and not on the seeker who is in heaven. Rick Warren writes this. It's my deep conviction, this is, this is just an absolutely astounding statement. I, I get chills when I read it. It's my deep conviction, he writes, that anybody can be one to Christ if you discover the key to his or her heart. Wow. That key to each person's heart is unique so it's sometimes difficult to discover. It may take some time to identify, but is the most likely place to start with a person's felt needs. Can I just simply say that's not true? Number one, typically we don't feel the right needs. Secondly, you can't discover a person's need in their heart and say, I can guarantee you I can make them saved if I can find that. Can anyone really be one to Christ if the key to their heart is discovered? It seems this seeker-sensitive approach and perspective is directed more horizontally than vertically. The goal becomes to understand the felt needs of a person and the keys to their heart rather than biblical truth and hard-earned theology. Look, there are no seekers. Man is theologically depraved. He doesn't naturally incline himself and lean toward God. His theology is messed up. Even the God he would seek, he would invent so that he would be accepted by him. He's theologically depraved. 
keeps going. Number five, man is erroneously depraved. These will go much quicker. Erroneously depraved. Verse 12, all have turned aside. All have turned aside. This speaks of going the wrong way, making an error and choosing the direction of life. They've made errors in their judgment. They don't choose the right way. They don't seek God. Life is full of decisions that lead away from, not towards God, if left to intuition and instinct. Erroneously depraved just bound to making errors. Romans 6 will tell us, a slave to sin, unable to do anything but choose the wrong way over and over and over again. It gets worse. Number six, man is morally depraved. Also in verse 12, together, there's the collective nature, they have become useless. Now, this doesn't mean useless in the sense of not being helpful in practical ways. It's useless in the sense of being morally capable to escape God's judgment. The context indicates both in the, the psalm and in the, uh, uh, in the passage that it's referencing in Romans that you're useless in terms of creating righteousness that will give you any moral standing before God. No one can be spiritually useful to himself. Listen, no one can be spiritually useful to himself by himself without the Spirit of God opening the eyes and ears to the understanding of the gospel. Another wave that comes crashing down. Man is universally depraved. Universally depraved. The last part of verse verse 12. He says it again. There's none. How many? How many? None. Who does good? There's not even one universally depraved. Psalm 14 tells us that. There is, told us that. There's none. There is no one. Even the people you think are the best are at their core selfish sinners who need God's grace. There are no exceptions. No exceptions to the assertion that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, which is in that context a synonym for his righteousness. The double emphasis here is very important. The repetition nails the nail down below the surface. It is not able to be pulled out. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Universal. Not Gandhi. Not Mother Teresa. Not Muhammad. Not our sweet grandmothers. None is righteous, not even one. But can I say this? Except Jesus. This next one is interesting, this next wave that crashes us. Man is verbally depraved, he's verbally depraved. Uh, Paul turns his attention now to, to the, uh, the speech, the, the dialogues we have. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. He turns now to Psalm 5, verse 9, to make his case against the tongue. Psalm 5, 9 says this. There's nothing reliable in what they say. Their inward part is destruction itself. Their throat is an open grave. They flatter with their tongue. If that's not enough, he goes on to the illustration of a a poisonous snake, snake, quoting Psalm 140, verse 3. The poison of asps is under their lips. 
Psalm 140, verse 3 says, They sharpen their tongues as a serpent. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Verse 14, whose mouth is full, doesn't contain, it's full of cursing and bitterness. Psalm 10, 7, his mouth is full of curses and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue is mischief and wickedness. What is he saying here? Human conversation is depraved. We are depraved verbally. People's speeching, speaking is full of filth and destruction. It resembles the stench of an open grave and the poison of a deadly snake. Listen to Jesus' assessment. Matthew 12, verse 34. You brood of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak what is good? You know he had this psalm in mind. The viper represents the biting remarks of the tongue. For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. Matthew 15, 18. But the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Here's the point that Paul and Jesus are making. If you want to know what's on a man's, in a man's heart, listen to what's on his tongue. Isn't it amazing back in Isaiah 6 when Isaiah sees that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. His response is to say, woe is me for I am a ruined man because I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And then he goes on on the universality. And I live among people of unclean lips because my eyes have seen the king. Your mouth is the greatest expression of your sinfulness. The way we speak constantly and daily indicts us, does it not? Paul's quick to say, from the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. We are verbally depraved, and that and that alone would be enough to waylay us before the judgment of God. Just listen to what we say. Number nine, man is volitionally depraved. This is his decisions. Volitionally depraved. Their feet, verse 15, are swift to shed blood. Feet speak of going and doing something, movement, action. This is a summary of the first half, last half rather, of Romans 1. Feet are quick to go and shed blood. Feet are quick to go and find sin. Sin is not just latent in a person's heart. Sin is pursued from a person's heart. All the way up and including Romans 1.32 where he says, not only do they do these things, but they give hearty approval to those who do those things. We actually start liking when other people sin because it makes us feel more comfortable that we're not alone. Number 10, he's destructively depraved. Destructively depraved. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their paths. This is quoting Isaiah 59, verse 7. Their feet run to evil. They hasten to shed innocent blood. Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Devastation and destruction are in their highways, their paths. Let me say it this way. Sin makes us all relationally reckless. It's a magnet for trouble, heartache, pain, suffering, and misery. It's in our path. Just look at anyone's biography. Number 11, two more crashing waves. Man is desperately 
desperately to pray. Verse 17. And the path of peace they have not known. This is so sad. This was sad in my own heart as an unbeliever. Path of peace they have not known. Isaiah 59.8. They do not know the way of peace. There's no justice in their tracks. They've made their paths crooked. Whatever, whoever treads on them does not know peace. You know, one way of looking at life is that everything we do can be boiled down to something we try to do that will contribute to the presence of peace and the absence of trouble in life. But without sin being atoned for, this is an absolute impossibility. Man's desperate. His sinfulness, his wickedness make him desperate to find a peace he cannot know inside himself. The twelfth description of man's total depravity is in verse 18. Man is foolishly depraved. Foolishly depraved. Verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Psalms and Proverbs both equate foolishness with a lack of fearing God. The man who does not fear God is a fool. Psalm 36, 1, transgression speaks to the ungodly with his heart. He says there is no fear of God before their eyes. Total depravity and the totality of depravity means that our rebellion against God is total, complete, comprehensive, and universal because there's no fear of God. To know God is to fear God. To know God is to fear who he is. You fear what's a threat. If God is not a legitimate threat in your life, it's proof that you don't know God. It's impossible to exaggerate the importance of admitting that this is what we're really like. I know we have a church picnic today. I know we're going to have a glorious time this afternoon. I know we're going to have fun with our family. But can you just take a moment and pause and say, do I really know how bad my condition is? Because if you don't, you will never know how wonderful and glorious the gospel is. Anything we do is rebellion against God unless it's rooted in faith. Remember, Romans 14, 23, whatever is not of faith is sin. We are entirely unable to submit to God or reform ourselves, and therefore we are totally deserving of eternal punishment. That's the message of one and two and half of three the book of Romans. If we think of ourselves as basically good or even less than totally bad, then we are at odds with God. We disagree fundamentally with God's assertion and assessment of our hearts. And our understanding of the redemptive work of God will be completely defective because then it will just be reformatory. Rehabilitation, remedial, helpful, rather than an entire heart transplant where he takes a stony heart 
and makes it a heart of flesh. If we humble ourselves under this terrible truth about ourselves, then and only then can we be in a position to see and appreciate the glory of God and the wonder of the work of God at the cross in the gospel. Look over for a quick moment at Romans 5. Think of those 12 waves that crash on us and tell us how bad we really are. Then look at verse 6. While we were still beyond help, helpless, at the right time, the right time in history and the right time for us, does this overwhelm you, Christ Died for who? For who? The ungodly. Someone actually might die for a righteous man as someone that they like. It's not talking about theologically. This is just talking about the guy who's a nice guy. Though for a good man, someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love in that not when we were righteous, not when we were good, in that while we were yet, say it, sinners, Christ died for us. He died for you. You are or you were an enemy of the divine, an offense to heaven, a horrific black blotch on his glorious white sheet of perfection. And yet, Christ died for the sins of a person who will believe by faith that he's their Savior. Over and over and over in the book of Romans, he has to correct the notion of antinomianism, which says, well, if he's done all that for me, I can just live like I want. And we always talk about not living like we want, but do we really understand that, he's, that grace really is that strong? He died. For people like you and me, whose spiritual resume is listed in Romans 3. You want a spiritual resume before God? Read Romans 3, 9 to 18. That's you. That's me. And that's who Christ died for. Would you bow your heads, please? I know this was a lot of text, and thank you for allowing me to plow through it, but it really needs to be received as one set of waves that pound us into a place of knowing how desperate we need a Savior. If you know Christ, aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that you have a Savior? Aren't you glad that he can give us his righteousness, take our sin? If you are not a believer, this is a great day that you've come to Mission Road Bible Church in a few minutes, we'll sing a song and be dismissed. To my right, through that door will be some folks who would love to talk to you about being right with God because of what he's done in sending his own son to die for people like you and me who are described here in Romans 3.
I would ask you, if there's something you have a question about, please run, don't walk. Make your way through the crowd. Find your way up here to me, to the folks in the prayer room. We would love to talk to you about how you can receive by faith the glorious good news that Christ saves sinners. Lord, all we really have is Christ. This is our life. This is our resume. Don't ever let us forget it. And always cling to the wonderful amazement that Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.